please turn in your Bibles or in your bulletins or on your phones uh, to John chapter 1. Our sermon text this morning is John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Let me read the text for us as we begin. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thanks be to God for his precious word. Well, I wonder how you would summarize your own experience of Christmas Uh, in five words. How would you summarize your own experience of Christmas in five words? Here are a few few answers. A family, festivity, fun, food, fat. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, Nostalgia, togetherness, cooking, family, drama. Another one, decorations, parties, lights, presents, eggnog. Uh, Another one, busy, 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 stressful, Grinch. Uh, One more, wrapping presents ain't my thing, right? Well, however, however you would summarize your experience of Christmas in five words, I don't think you could do better than the Gospel of John does in summarizing the meaning of the Christmas story in these five words. And the word became flesh. The gospel of Mark jumps straight to Jesus Christ's adult life. The gospel of Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. The gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth from Mary's perspective. Luke's account is the longest. Uh, The gospel of John reveals the cosmic and the theological meaning of Christmas in all of its depth. What happened when Jesus was born? Well, there were dreams, and there were shepherds, and there were angels, and later on there were wise men, there was Herod, and all the rest. And that's true. But what happened underneath all of that at Christmas was that the word the eternal, divine, second person of the Trinity became flesh. He took to himself a human nature. He became a man that he might save us. True God of true God, light of light eternal. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. What an amazing thing. Why did it happen? Why did the Word become flesh? And what does it mean for us? 
Well, let's see what John has to say in our text. Three questions to answer from our text this morning. Very simple questions. I'll give them to you as we go. First question, how can we know God? How can we know God? Based on the fact that you are here in church this morning, I assume that I don't need to argue to you that it is at least somewhat important to know God. Jesus himself taught that there was absolutely nothing more important than knowing God, that eternal and true life consists in having a relationship with the true and living God. Friend, whatever it is that's demanding your time and your attention for the rest of this holiday season, whatever you're pursuing this holiday season to give you joy in life or just to stay afloat, a Jesus would tell us that it cannot compare to the joy and the worth of knowing God, of cultivating a life-giving relationship with him. So how can we know God? How do we even know about God? Well, many people's answer to that question is that we know about God basically through our own thinking and through our own investigation, through our ability to find out what God is like. We know God by deciding to go and build relationship with him. And that, that makes some sense at first, and there's some truth to that. Right? If, if you want to learn about trees... Say you want to become an arboriculturist, which is a fancy word for someone who studies trees. Uh, you had better go spend some time in the woods, right? Or you had better study the works of others who've spent time observing and studying and looking at trees to learn what they're like. And as with trees, so much with so much, or so as with so much of the created world, even many of the parts of the world that aren't visible to the naked eye are subject to our powers of observation. But that's actually not the case with God. Look what John tells us there at the first part of verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. And that's not just because nobody's managed to find where God is yet. The reason that no one has ever seen God is, as our brother Mike Jones reminded us a few weeks ago when he preached from Ezekiel, the reason for that is that God is invisible. God is invisible, and his invisibility is related to his infinity, right? For God to be visible would for him to be having boundaries and limits, but God has no boundaries. He has no finite limits. He is infinite, and therefore, he can't be seen. And that leaves us in a quandary, because that means that we can't just go decide to learn about God. He is above our comprehension, right? To see someone, if you can find them, if you can get to them, you don't really need their permission, right? I can, if, if you're nearby, I can look at you without you even knowing that I'm looking at you. But if God's not like that, if he's not open to our investigation, if he won't fit under our microscope, if he isn't within range of our telescope, then how are we going to know him? Well, the Bible's answer is that if we're going to know God, he has to reveal himself to us. 
And the good news is that God has revealed himself to us. The Bible teaches that the invisible God has spoken to us in a variety of ways. I can see you without your consent. I can't hear from you unless you open your mouth. And friends, God has spoken. Scripture describes the world that God has created as a kind of speech about what its maker is like, about his power and his glory. Scripture itself claims to be the speech or the words of God to us. When you read the Bible, friend, you are reading the speech of God. Here in John 1, we find that the supreme form of God's speech to us, so that we might know what he's like, is the word who became flesh. There, of course, John is speaking about Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who became a man. In the very first verse of his gospel, John writes this for us. He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Of course, John here is propounding the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery that there is one God who exists eternally as three persons, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you a question this morning to illustrate why John describes the second person of the Trinity, the Son, as the Word. Let me ask you a question. Has anyone wished you a Merry Christmas this morning? If they haven't, Merry Christmas. Well, no one in the room would respond to what I've just saying uh, by saying this. No one has wished me a Merry Christmas. In fact, you, David, have not even just now wished me a Merry Christmas, because that wasn't you. That was your words. It wasn't you that wished me a Merry Christmas. It was the sound waves vibrating through the air. It was the words. It wasn't you, right? You see, even with us, us finite, limited, non-infinite, non-triune beings, our words are not entirely separable from us, from our identities, right? The difference between us and God is that from all of eternity, God's word, God's self-expression is so real and so lively that he's a person. He's the son. He's the word. He's the image of the invisible God, says Colossians. He's the radiance, the shining out of God's glory, says Hebrews chapter 1. God's word both is with God from all of eternity and he is God. The second person of the Trinity, the Son. And what John describes here in verse 14 is the miracle that the word took on flesh. He became a baby. The infinite Son took on a finite human nature. The eternal word took on a birthday. Verse 14 says this, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, the text, you might translate it as, The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. That language harkens back strongly 
to one of the ways God had revealed himself to his Old Testament people in Israel when he manifested his presence among them through the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, which our brother Charles read about for us earlier from Exodus. Uh, Israel was traveling through the wilderness, living in tents, uh, and God dwelt with his people in their midst in a tent of his own called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And God is, John is saying here that just like God had demonstrated his willingness to come be with his people in the tabernacle, so in a greater way, God demonstrated his willingness to come be with his people as his son came to take on a human nature. I've been speaking kind of ambiguously about the difference, of, I'm sorry, not really distinguishing between knowing God and knowing about God, right? Those two aren't the exact same thing. I've, I've not really distinguished carefully between those two, and that's been on purpose, right? Can you see from, from God's willingness to come and dwell with us through Jesus Christ, God wants to do both of those things. He wants us to know about him, and he wants us to know him in relationship Look there at verse 18 again. It says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus didn't just come to be with the small set, subset of humanity who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to make known the Father in an unprecedented and clear way. And you can see Jesus is supremely qualified to do that. He is, as John says, he's the only God present at the Father's side for all of eternity. Jesus has the inside scoop on what God is like. That's why he can make the invisible God known to us. Look back again at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Just like our words give expression to our identities, so sons often resemble or look like their father's. Well, just as it is among earthly sons and human sons and human fathers, so even more perfectly it is between God the Father and God the Son. The glory of the Son that was seen by John and those who lived with Jesus when he walked the earth, it is the glory of the only Son from the Father. It is the Father-like glory of the Son. Again, the book of Hebrews tells us that the Son is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. So when we see the glory of Jesus, when we see what the Word made flesh is like, we are seeing what God is like. Here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 14. He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. First question, how can we know God. First answer, Jesus has made God known to us. Well, second question, how do we learn about Jesus? Right? Eternal life is knowing God, but God is invisible. 
But the good news is that he's made himself known to us through Jesus. Well, great. How do we learn about Jesus? Right now, we can't see Jesus either. It's not because he's invisible, right? He has still currently a human nature glorified in heaven. We can't see him because he's in heaven right now preparing a place for his people. But John did see Jesus. In fact, one of the reasons that God, John wrote his gospel was because he saw the word made flesh. And he wants to make what he saw known to God's people. Verse 14, we have seen his glory. John, the author of this gospel, was Jesus' disciple and his close friend for three years. And John claims to have seen Jesus' miracles. He claims to have been present as Jesus died and to spend time with Jesus after the resurrection. And I want us to see that the way that John structures this passage suggests really two ways that we learn about Jesus two ways that we learn about Jesus. Have you noticed that so far, we've only talked about verse 14 and verse 18 uh, in the passage, right? We've only talked about the first and the last verse. That's because they seem to make the same point, right? The first verse and the last verse uh, both make the point about God, the invisible God revealing himself through the only begotten son, Jesus, well, it seems to me and it seems to others that John has structured this passage as a chiasm. Merry Christmas, it's a chiasm. Love a good chiasm. So a chiasm is a literary structure uh, in which the first element of a passage matches the last element. And if you move one step in, the second element of a passage matches the second to last. You move one more step in and there's another match. And then usually there's something very important at the center of a chiasm. You can think of a, a chiasm as a kind of sideways pyramid. It's a way of organizing a text to bring out its themes and to focus what's in the middle. Well, look at this chiasm, right? On, on the top and on the bottom, what we have is God revealing himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. Move one step in and we have two references to grace and truth. We'll say more about that later. Move one more step in and what do you have? You have in verse 15 a reference to John. That's not John who wrote the gospel. This verse 15 John is John the Baptist uh, who had a public ministry announcing Jesus before his own public ministry. And then in verse 17, corresponding to John the Baptist, we have a mention of Moses and his law. Well, what are these people doing here, right? We're talking about the eternal word becoming flesh. Why, why are we talking about John and Moses? What's, what's the deal here? What do they have in common? Why do they match in the chiasm? Well, I think that what John is getting at is that John the Baptist and Moses are both witnesses to Jesus Christ. They point us to how we are to know who Jesus is. Let's talk about Moses first. There in verse 17, we read that the law was given through Moses. And indeed, Moses is the human author of the first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the law in the New Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
And the law, those first five books of the Old Testament, they're really the, the foundation of the rest of the Old Testament. Everything else in the Old Testament grows out of, organically, so to speak, the first five books. And so the reason that I think that Moses is mentioned in this passage as parallel to John the Baptist is because the scriptures delivered through Moses... And the scriptures that grew out of those scriptures, the entire Old Testament, and I think we're not off track to add the entire New Testament, the scriptures are how we know about Jesus. In John chapter 5, John records a dispute between Jesus and some of his contemporaries who tried to pit Jesus against the law of Moses. They say, Jesus, you're bringing us this new thing, but it's contrary to what Moses says, and we know that God spoke through Moses. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. What I'm bringing you is not contrary to Moses. Jesus says this in John chapter 5. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me again and again. Throughout the New Testament, God makes the point that the blazing center of his word is the word made flesh. That the blazing center of the Bible is the person, Jesus Christ. Friend, if you come to Franconia Baptist Church any Sunday, Lord willing, by the grace of God, what you'll find is that we are studying the Bible. We're studying the Bible, all the parts of the Bible, all over the Bible. And whatever part of the Bible we are studying, you will find that we are always talking about Jesus. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, the gospels, the epistles, all of it points to Jesus Christ. That's how God wants us to know about Jesus. Not to see him yet before he comes, but to hear his word. How do we know God? God's revealed himself to us in Jesus. How do we know Jesus? God has revealed his son to us in the scriptures. Friend, I hope That in 2023, that you read the Bible voraciously. That you read it eagerly. I hope you read the Bible not to try to justify yourself before God by your quiet time. I hope you read the Bible not in order to assuage your conscience. Not in order to feel good about yourself. Not so that you know more and can impress other people. I hope that you read the Bible voraciously. Because you were created to know God through Jesus Christ. And this book is how we know Jesus until he comes back. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that testify about me. One more brief comment about how we learn about Jesus at the other witness, we've talked about Moses, kind of the foundation of God's word, the five books of Moses. What about John the Baptist up there in verse 15? Just a very brief comment about John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not write any books of the Bible, but to summarize his role in the story of the Bible, John the Baptist 
was chosen by God to tell people about Jesus. Brothers and sisters of Franconia Baptist Church, none of us has been assigned a role in redemptive history as unique as John the Baptist's role. Jesus says that the role of his New Testament people is even greater than that of John the Baptist, but none of us kind of is is such a unique person as John the Baptist. But this is what we have in common with John the Baptist, brothers and sisters. We get to tell other people about Jesus. We get to tell other people about the scriptures that point to the Christ who reveals the Father who gives eternal life. May God grant us to be eager in that work that he's given us to do. How do we know God? We know God through Jesus Christ. How do we learn about Jesus? We learn about Jesus through the scriptures and through those who tell us about them. Third and final question. What does Jesus show us about God? If you want to see what God is like, then look at Jesus. How do you look at Jesus? Well, through his witnesses, through the scriptures. If you look at Jesus, what will you see? What kind of God does Jesus reveal his father to be? Well, friend, what's right in the middle of the chiasm? Grace. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You might translate that as grace in place of grace, or something even more gracious in place of another gracious thing. I think John is saying all that God had shown and given to his people through the Old Testament, particularly the law of Moses, it was so gracious. In Jesus Christ, we have received abundantly more grace than that. What's the thread woven throughout this passage? It's grace, right? Verse 14, grace and truth. The Christ is full of grace and truth. Verse 16, grace upon grace we've received from Jesus Christ. Verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus Christ, what you see is that the God he reveals is full of grace and truth. Let me just remind you that grace is undeserved favor. Grace is kindness that you didn't earn. Grace is love that you could not merit. Listen, when you think about the Christmas story... When you see a God who loved sinners so much that he gave his only begotten son to become a man, to live a life of hardship, to die on the cross as a substitute for his enemies, to rise from the dead and offer those who hated him eternal life if they would turn from sin and trusted him. When you hear that story, it's so clear that God has given such an astonishingly gracious gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's more than that. It's more than just a gift, right? Have you ever received a really generous gift from someone? And because it was so generous, you really, you doubted in your heart that they actually loved you as much as the gift said that they did. Have you ever experienced that? 
right? You, you think, wow, this gift is so big, and I, it's very clear to me that I haven't done anything to deserve this. This person must have felt that they had to give this to me, or they were just trying to be good. They can't love me as much as this generous gift says that they do. Have you ever felt that? Brothers and sisters, you must not feel that way about God's gift of Jesus Christ to you. The whole point of the gift is to show you what God is like. The gift of Jesus Christ isn't just a good thing that God did in a generous moment. It is a revelation of his heart toward his people of his kindness, of his grace, of his favor, of his steadfast love. Christian, listen, if you have received God's mercy in Christ, his heart toward you is one of grace, of favor, of kindness. John tells us twice that what we've been shown in Jesus is not only grace, but grace and truth. Grace and truth. Some people have understood grace and truth as a kind of balance between God's kindness and God's firmness or his love and his justice, right? God is gracious, so gracious, but he's also truthful. And we can't reject God's grace indefinitely without suffering for that. And that, that's absolutely true. God extends his marvelous grace to anyone who would receive his son, Jesus Christ, but his truthfulness, right, his faithfulness to his own good character means that there will be a reckoning for those who stubbornly refuse his kindness. That's, that's totally true. I don't think that that's what John means by the phrase grace and truth here. Other parts of the Bible teach that very clearly. Behold the kindness and the severity of God, says Paul in Romans. But, but I think that John is actually talking about something else with this pair of, of nouns, grace and truth. As some have observed that the way that John in his gospel uses that word truth or the word true throughout his gospel is to describe the fulfillment or the substance of something that was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly described metaphorically as a vine or as God's vineyard, his precious possession that he cares for so that he might receive the fruit of righteousness and obedience and love from the vineyard. The problem is that Israel is a really terrible vineyard throughout the Old Testament. It bears the fruit of rebellion again and again and again. So how much does it mean when Jesus shows up and in John 15 he says, I am the true vine, right? I'm the fulfillment vine. I'm the real deal vine. The vine to which Israel the vine was a preview and a pointer. I, Jesus says, am the one who will bear the fruit that is pleasing to God. The one who gives life to all the branches who abide in him. That's how John uses the word truth as the fulfillment or the substance of a prior promise. So when John repeats twice that, that Christ shows us grace and truth, it seems that part of what he means is that Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's kindness to his people. Jesus is the full and final 
substance of God's grace to his people. He is the real deal, the main attraction, the kindness of God to which all the other kindnesses of God are just pointers. He brings grace and truth, the fulfillment of God's gracious promises all throughout the Bible. Well, brothers and sisters, I I hope that you have had a sweet and joyous Christmas season. I hope that in the food and the family and the festivities that you've enjoyed over the past few weeks, that you've been reminded of God's kindness, of his grace to you. But brother, sister, Christian, listen, don't read God's heart toward you off your circumstances. Don't infer from how things are going with you at the moment what God's heart toward you is. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate expression of God's heart toward you is the gracious gift of his son, Jesus Christ. God gave his son to come down to make the Father known to us. God gave his son to take on flesh that he might dwell with us. God gave his son to be crucified that we might be forgiven. Kids, 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 so glad that you're here with us at church on Christmas morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. I love you guys. I had the wonderful privilege of spending Christmas morning before the service with another family. And this family, they gave presents to their kids. They gave some really, really good presents to their kids. And you know what that showed me? That showed me that this mom and this dad, they loved their kids so much that they would give them good gifts. Kids, listen. The best gift ever is Jesus Christ. God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man and to die for our sins. And that shows us how much he loves us. Kids, I hope that you got or that you will get some really good gifts for Christmas. But more than that, I hope and I pray that you receive God's gift of Jesus Christ and the eternal life that he brings. See how much God must love us to give us his son, Jesus Christ. How can we know God? Jesus has made him known to us. How can we know Jesus? He is revealed to us on every page of the scriptures and through those who speak about them. What does Jesus show us about God? Jesus shows us that God is full of grace and truth. He is full of love and favor to undeserving sinners. What a gift. How should we respond? 
How should we respond to the grace of Christmas? Well, let me put it in five words. Glory to the newborn king. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he reveals that you are a God full of grace and truth. I pray for every person here this morning that from the fullness of Jesus Christ that we would receive grace upon grace, that through trusting in Christ, we would receive your grace and your truth. God, help us to be truly thankful. Thank you for Jesus. Receive our worship now. Bless us the rest of this Christmas. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.